Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. What does the future look like? By melting business acumen and innovative technology, Deloitte can help you build the future only you can imagine. They can help engineer solutions for your business reality today and your vision for tomorrow to get you to a world where you don't just dream it, you build it. See how you can engineer advantage with Deloitte at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey, everybody. It's Anna from The Vergecast. On this week's interview episode, Russell Brandom and I sit down with Kim Zetter, who's an absolutely amazing cybersecurity journalist. We wanted to talk about election security, voting machine security, e-voting, alternative ways of voting, how to keep votes secure, safe, and anonymous. These are huge issues, especially in the pandemic, when people are not quite as excited to go to polling places as might otherwise be. It turns out e-voting is incredibly hard to do securely. Voting machines security issues have been well known for a long time. There's just a lot of surface area for attack, even as we all kind of push towards these e-voting solutions. Kim has a lot of thoughts on this, a lot of thoughts on what the safest way to vote is. Obviously, this is all relevant because there's an election coming up. One thing I do want to call out, we actually taped this episode back in March before primaries, so you will hear us talk about the upcoming primaries here and there. We just had a really big backlog of episodes, and this one got pushed, but it felt incredibly relevant, uh, so we wanted to get it out this week. So check it out. It's Kim Zetter on The Vergecast with me and Russell Brandom. Kim Zetter, you're a cybersecurity journalist. Uh, you wrote an incredible book about Stuxnet called Countdown to Zero Day. Welcome to The Vergecast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And Verge Policy Editor Russell Brandom is here because anytime there's cybersecurity, I just look inquiringly at Russell uh, for help. Uh, welcome, Russell. Wouldn't miss it for the world. So, Kim, you know, I wanted to talk to you broadly when we asked you to come on about election security in general. Uh, we are obviously now talking in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. There's a lot of conversation about how long the sort of shutdowns will last. There's a lot of conversation about voting by mail. I know Nancy Pelosi is pushing that really hard in, in sort of the stimulus bill negotiations. What is your general sense of how ready we are for this upcoming election, given what's happening right now? Oh, I don't think we're ready at all. I mean, I think that, <laughs> no, I mean, you have election officials are used to the methods that they, they've used for years, right? And even those methods that are, you know, long established, um, we still have problems in elections, you know? And so now you're throwing into the mix something entirely new for many states. I mean, some states are already doing entirely vote by mail, Colorado, uh, Oregon, a couple of them, Washington, Hawaii. And there are states that are that offer absentee balloting, uh, you know, essentially vote by home or vote at home ballots to anyone who wants them. Some restrict that. 
But when you're talking about going from sort of requested ballots to sort of mandatory ballots to everyone, you're talking about changing the entire infrastructure of an election. And it requires a lot more staff to process uh, vote by mail ballots and just a lot more logistics. And, you know, throwing that into the mix, in some cases, if you're trying to do it now for primaries, because primaries have all been rescheduled for May and June, that's a couple of months. That's not going to happen. And even November is touchy. Are you used to the nervous laugh response when you give the bad news? <laughs> I feel like it's usually, usually when we're talking about election cybersecurity, it, it is the bad news. And I wonder, is the kind of, oh, no, uh, well, a common response? I think, well, I mean, I think that elections, you know, in general, don't promote a positive response in the U.S. because they're often so problematic here. And... It, I, I feel like our elections are sort of jury-rigged. You know, we sort of patch them together, and at the end of election, we sort of wipe our brow and hear a sigh of relief that, oh, okay, maybe um, we actually elected the right person, or maybe that went, that went okay, despite everything that goes wrong in elections. So we sort of, you know, fly by in every election a year and feel like, okay, we pulled something off, but it's, it's really iffy every time we do it. And I know a lot of people hate it when I talk this way, especially election officials, because they want the public to have confidence in the outcome of elections. But if you are inside and you see how the sausage is made, yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's disturbing how elections are pulled off in the country. So let's, let's take that for a minute. Outside of the pandemic, outside of maybe we'll postpone our elections, particularly primaries, outside of vote by mail for the general You've written a lot about the 2016 election. You've written a lot about the 2018 election when there was um, concerted attempts to sort of break into the infrastructure, access photo registration databases. What is the sort of state of play of elections before the virus hit? Um, well, uh, you know, election officials and DHS have been uh, putting in this very concerted effort since 2016 to try and make election infrastructure more secure. And so they've had three years to do this. And it's great that DHS uh, is playing a role in this now, because prior to 2016, really, we had nothing. Um, and now we have sort of someone leading it who can come in and offer free services and do a security assessment for election officials. But even what DHS has been doing in the last three years is extremely limited. And they've only uh, been able to actually even do their assessments in about 40 jurisdictions. They released a report recently um, showing their progress uh, since 2016. There are more than 10,000 election jurisdictions in the country. And their report showed that they were able to do security assessments at 40 of them, about 40 of them. And even what they're doing, a security assessment that DHS does is they come in, they'll sort of do as kind of a, a pen test of your uh, internet facing system. So these are, let's say, the voter registration database or voter lookups, uh, looking up for precincts, anything that's connected to the internet. They will do a scan um, and see if there are vulnerabilities. But these are only the online uh, facing systems. They don't look at the voting machines themselves at all. Uh, they don't have a mandate for that. And these are proprietary systems and they couldn't look at them um, even if they wanted to without permission of the voting machine vendors. So there's this large um, swath of infrastructure that has not even been examined since 2016. So just to be clear, I just want to uh, call it off. You said pen test. That's a penetration test. So they come in and they try to 
attack the systems that are public facing to the internet. Yeah, they will. They'll do a scan. They they look for um, sort of everything that's on the uh, on the system, or sorry, everything that's connected to the internet, and then they will look at vulnerabilities and recommend patches. And then they'll do a follow-up and uh, suggest improvements um, after that. I, I wouldn't call it, I suppose, I, that sort of was a misnomer. I'm, I'm not sure that I would call it a real pen test that they do. Yeah. Um, that's much more involved. Um, but they're really doing sort of a risk and vulnerability assessment. And then the actual voting machines. I remember this being a controversy even so far back as 2000, right, with the, uh, the machines and the source code is proprietary. Nobody could audit the code. That's still going on? Yes. So since 2016, a couple of the voting machine vendors have agreed to hand over uh, their systems to DHS. So DHS uh, runs out of um, Idaho National Lab. DHS has a program there and they've had a long standing program there for industrial control system security. So and this started around um, a couple of years before Stuxnet, so around 2006 or so. And they started doing assessments of industrial control systems for vendors. And they would uh, look at the vulnerabilities, look at the source code, and then uh, give the vendor a report. So since 2016, a couple of the voting machine vendors, DHS has done outreach to them, and a couple of voting machine vendors have agreed to provide their systems to DHS to be examined at Idaho National Lab. Um, but they're they're looking at, I believe, upcoming systems, not systems that are currently in the in the market. It's unclear to me exactly what they've looked at. But the problem with that is is that we already have longstanding assessments of all of this equipment. Many of the machines out there have been examined by academics who were able to get hold of the systems. The vulnerabilities in these systems have been known for two decades. So there isn't really anything, I think, that DHS's assessment could uncover that someone hasn't already uncovered. So you're looking at sort of um, a feel-good movement of uh, voting machine vendors being able to put out a press release saying, we are very transparent, we gave our system to DHS to look at, and we are actively now looking at um, addressing these vulnerabilities. But these are vulnerabilities that they sat on for two decades and showed no interest in many cases of fixing. And I also want to point out that many of the problems with these systems are architectural. It's not a matter of uh, slapping a patch on them. These are uh, endemic problems that have to be fixed uh, through simply re-architecting the system from scratch. Give me an example of one of those. Well, um, the way that they use encryption in some cases, where they use it badly, they implement it badly, they don't, they use uh, uh, poor algorithms, things like that. Those are things that they have to, you know, fix in a more concerted way, not just with a patch. Um, they have hard-coded passwords in some of these systems. Uh, you change a hard-coded password, and that potentially breaks other parts of the system. Well, we're, we're not even sure about some of the features in the system. So, for instance, the many systems have an embedded modem that are used to transmit votes on election night. Well, when these voting machines go through testing and certification in um, labs that are certified by on a federal level, the actual modem transmission part never even gets examined by these labs. So we have parts that actually we don't even know how they've secured them. We rely on, for instance, election systems and software um, to tell us that they have all of these security features around those modems and the transmission, but we don't really know. No one's ever actually even looked at that. And so it's unclear even in the DHS assessment if they looked at the modem transmission of votes. So this sort of, you know, we're talking about like the voting machines versus the, the parts of the election infrastructure that are connected to the internet. 
And this gets to something that you see in a lot of articles of sort of post-2016, where it trickled out that there had been a lot of, at the very least, there were Russian government officials sort of paying a lot of attention to various voter roles and and sort of the the internet-connected infrastructure. But one of the things that they always say is, okay, there was some sort of message. We don't want to know if it's an attack or not. You know, maybe the system was compromised, but they the voter rolls themselves weren't changed. But there's always this sort of note in the story of, you know, there's no indication that the actual vote tally was altered. Right. Because that's not connected to the system. And also, I think, you know, when you're reporting on this stuff, it's sort of seen as good form to, like, reassure people in the integrity of the result just to say, you know, don't it's not like they were sort of doing this to to so that Bernie would lose out or or what have you. But it sounds like from what you're describing, that kind of distinction is not really as clear as it looks. So a couple of things about that. I'll, I'll, I'll address sort of the messaging that came out after 2016 first. Um, there, were, um, there were talking points passed around by election officials and to DHS that were they were very concerned that of course I mean there were there was all there was already concerns before 2016 about the integrity of the outcome and whether or not people could believe it and of course Trump was tweeting about you know when it looked like uh, he might be losing he sort of injects this tweet out there that would call into question the results if he doesn't win and then he does win and then everyone also is suspicious about that so election officials were very nervous about any kind of loss of uh, faith in election outcomes and elections in general. And so the talking points repeated over and over again were um, that voting machines are never connected to the internet, so no one could hack them. And there, and first they said uh, no votes were ever changed. That was that was really the adamant statement. No votes were ever changed. And then they had to sort of walk that back because people like me were criticizing them for that. And then they sort of uh, caveated that. Well, there's no evidence that any votes were changed. So we've gone from there are no votes that have, have were changed to there's no evidence that votes were changed. But there has to be a caveat to that, a further caveat to that, in that no one actually looked to see if any votes were changed. So what I mean by that is that uh, it's part of what I said before is that the voting machine vendors prevent anyone from looking at their voting machines. They actually go to court to to fight this when, when people do try to look at them. We don't have any sort of uh, effort after an election to examine voting machines and determine whether or not they they perform the way that they were supposed to. And even if we did have an effort to do that, there's there it's really unclear whether we would have the technical ability to see that because you can make malware on a machine that disappears once the election is over. And so you could test a machine after an election and it seems to perform perfectly well, but during the election it might not have and you might not ever know it. Um, so that's an issue there is that we, we don't even actually look um, to see if votes were changed. And so these assertions, you have to take them with a grain of salt and put caveats around them that no one actually ever looked. Um, the issue now about the, you know whether voting machines were connected to the Internet or even the issue about those voter registration databases that the Russians were so interested in in 2016, when everyone says uh, they looked at data but they didn't change any data. So we're, this is another statement that we're supposed to be trusting. Given the lack of security, the general lack of security around election infrastructure, we're supposed to believe that all of these states have the ability to detect when voter registration databases have changed. 
And it's not clear that they do have that. Uh, in order to do that, you have to have some kind of change management system in place so that you have a backup of the, the voter roll data over, I don't know, let's say a year's time or whatever, and to do a comparison to see over those subsequent months when the Russians were looking into voter registration databases, you have to have some change management to see what got changed and what were authenticated changes and what were unauthenticated changes. And it's not clear that states were doing that. So we don't, we don't really even know what's behind those statements, those assertions that they're making. So I guess, I mean, a lot of what you're describing here are sort of safeguards that we should have, both sort of technically and politically, right? That like there should be a technical safeguard in the state election system. And then also there should be sort of a political safeguard of like someone is checking to see a sort of third party is coming in to make sure that that technical safeguard is working appropriately. Um, and, you know, I, I, it's absolutely like alarming how few of those safeguards are in place. But one thing I always struggle with is, you know, as a cybersecurity writer, a lot of what people think about is sort of threat models, right? What is the attack that you're worried about? And I think, you know, for this... A lot of what you hear from election vendors is, well, the threat model, because the machine isn't physically on the Internet, right? Like the voting machine isn't physically on the Internet. The threat model would have to be some sort of Russian spy slash troll coming in and physically plugging a USB stick into, you know, this machine. And then that would compromise this particular voting location. So there are multiple threat models. There's the threat model against the voter registration databases, right? So if someone comes in and alters the voter registration databases to remove voters or to indicate that they're in, in an active voter and then they have to vote um, in some provisional way or something. There are a lot of ways to just sort of disrupt and disenfranchise voters if you mess with the voter registration database. But that's a very visual, um, sorry, visible way of doing it, right? We'll start to see a lot of voters showing up at the polls and having problems with, um, with their voter registration. So, so that's one thing. That's one threat model that would create a lot of chaos. And it's unclear, you know, if we would do a do-over, that's the other thing is we don't we don't have methods for like, OK, if this goes wrong, what is our plan? The second thing about what you said about no voting machines connected to the Internet, that's not true. All of those voting machines that transmit um, votes on election night via modem are connected to the Internet. They're connecting to cellular uh, towers in order to do that transmission. And that data is going through the Internet. And that means that there is a back end system on the Internet also that is receiving that cellular transmission. So there are critical systems that are connected to the Internet. And I wrote a story about that last year which said not only is there just a system there that's receiving those votes, connected to that system is also the system that does the final tabulation of official voting results. But there's also um, that system that does that final tabulation is also in many cases the system that programs the all of the voting machines before an election. So it's not about someone coming in with a USB stick and infecting one system or um, even just like one county system. You have another threat model here, and that is the voting machine vendor themselves. Or um, in many cases, counties will contract with a third-party company to program the machines for them before an election. Those third-party companies that sort of sit there as middlemen 
are vulnerable. They they don't have CISOs. They don't have uh, security staff. They ha- have never needed or had a, secu- a requirement to have any kind of security awareness or basic level of security themselves. So the threat models are multi here, at multiple layers, multiple levels, multiple parties. And that's some of what DHS has been trying to address over the last three years. But like I said, they are, they have a, a little a small staff and they have limited amount of resources and way, way, way too many jurisdictions to try and secure. Support of the Vergecast comes from Shopify. Whether you're a huge company or a small crafter trying to make a buck off your hobby, selling online is one of the best ways to grow. Shopify is one of the top e-commerce platforms that you can use to get started. But it's not just online. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. And you can sell wherever, online or with their in-person point of sale system. You can also sell more with less effort with their AI-powered tool, Shopify Magic. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. You might recognize more brands who already use Shopify, like Rothy's, Brooklinen, Allbirds, and more. Millions of entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries rely on Shopify for their e-commerce needs. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash vergecast. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash vergecast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash vergecast. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So a thing we talk about on the show all the time is that computers sort of generally are well understood. Like you add a computer to something and you kind of know what problems it comes with. And so here it seems like computers are very good at counting. So it seems like you should just glue a computer onto this process that is fundamentally counting very fast. Uh, and reliably. But then there's the set of computer problems of security, network security. You need a uh, chief security officer. You need multiple rounds of audits. And no one has really addressed that set of problems in a, in a holistic or countrywide way. Is that a good frame to think about it? Yeah. I mean, so any any time you introduce computers into the mix here, you have the potential for problems, whether or not it's someone hacking or just a software glitch. Um, or some kind of uh, thing that goes wrong with it. You have so you have a problem of relying on that system. Now it's not a bad thing to use a computer to count ballots, to count votes for you know rapid counting. And and there are some studies that indicate that computers are more accurate than people you know hand counting, manual manually counting. But you need to have a checks and balance, and that's the point of the audits that you mentioned. Uh, and doing you, first of all, you need that paper trail. You need a paper backup, a ballot that was hand marked by the voter so we know the voter's intent 
and you have that as a backup, that auditing part is critical that you mention, um, because if no one ever actually looks at that paper backup, then it, it doesn't mean anything. And the problem that we have right now is that there are only, um, I believe, two states that actually do the type of audit that is designed to detect um, if there's been a problem with the software. Uh, many states have audits uh, in place. Um, they have to do some kind of uh, audit legally, but the way that they do the audit um, won't actually um, necessarily catch problems. And so we've got sort of these false assurances. We spent the last two decades, many states moving back to machines that produce a paper backup, but then they don't ever actually even look at the paper backup, so it doesn't mean anything. But then we had laws come in that said, okay, now you have to, um, in some cases, look at that paper backup, but the way that the law is written, it's so badly, the audit is so badly done that it doesn't actually mean anything. Um, so that's really where we are right now that we need to fix. So you're describing, you know, just sort of in a, very basic sense, a lot of complexity, right? Like we're going to add computers to this. We got to audit the, the machines and then they're going to generate a paper trail and then we got to audit the paper trail against the result. Shouldn't, I mean, if we're talking about widespread vote by mail, shouldn't everyone just mail a slip of paper in and have that hand counted? And it's probably the same amount of complexity without the same amount of attack surface. So there are um, other issues with vote-by-mail ballots, and you'll, a, a lot of the opponents of vote-by-mail will tell you that this creates a better opportunity for fraud. Um, so not hacking, but um, you know, this is the way that um, elections used to be thrown, right? Is that someone who has access to those ballots either replaces a bin of ballots or loses a bin of ballots or, you know, changes marks on the ballots or things like that. So that's a different problem, but it's a smaller scale problem. It's you're talking about someone who has access to ballots. And that's different than someone who can, you know, get into a voting machine vendor and change the software on, you know, thousands of machines. So it's not without its own risks, um, that issue of someone stealing ballots or replacing ballots. But that's not the primary problem um, that we're looking at in terms of moving to the vote-by-mail ballots. The vote-by-mail ballots um, involve a lot more processing and a lot more people. Um, it's a really, really complicated process. When you fill out a ballot at home, you um, put it in an envelope that's specially designed. It has a Usually it has a legal statement on the outside of the envelope, and you sign it. When that ballot arrives to the election office, they first have to verify that signature against a signature that you have on file with them in your voter registration or in your DMV registration. And sometimes they do that with software, that match, and sometimes they do it simply with a visible match. And there are all kinds of problems there if that they don't actually match. You know, I don't know, it, does your signature remain same 20 <laughs> years down the line? Who knows? Uh, but anyways, and so there are states that don't require when there's a mismatch for them to actually even tell you that there's been a mismatch. So you may not ever even know that they rejected your ballot based on your signature, and then you have no chance of uh, correcting that. In other cases, the law gives them a minimal amount of time to notify you and for you to then um, rectify that. And again, if you're unable to rectify that or you don't respond, then again, your ballot gets thrown out. So now what we have here is a situation where we create a lot more opportunities for voters to get disenfranchised um, because the processing, uh, the process is in place for processing those mail, vote mail vote by mail ballots um, is problematic. So one model that I've heard about, I know votes 
VOATC is very controversial, but it's, when they're talking about the design, they say, all right, you know, to keep people from being disenfranchised, we're going to have, you have this app, the app verifies your identity in various ways. You sort of hit the button and, you know, that, that casts your vote a certain way. The screen tells you you've cast the vote. And then there's a back end that even though there isn't either, even though you maintain anonymity in a general sense, or I suppose pseudonymity because it has to be tied to you in some way, you can go in with your password that's granted and see how your vote was registered so that if anyone gets up to any shenanigans, you can go and say, oh, wait, like this, this was this problem. I've meant to vote for this one person and cast my vote for this other person. Obviously, like votes, their specific implementation has come under fire from a lot of the auditing process that, that you're talking about. But I wonder if as like a, as sort of a, mechanism this idea of voting and then verifying your vote is is sort of something we should be looking at or or sort of thinking about yes but i i I want to put a caveat on what you just described here um the the method that you're describing doesn't allow you to verify that your vote was counted accurately all it allows you to verify is that they received your your ballot and that your ballot um presumably is in that mix of of ballots that was tallied. But it can't tell you that the when they tallied the, that ballot, that they actually tallied your votes correctly. Um, and that's the problem with a lot of these crypto um, solutions for voting, is that they will give you sort of a tracking number that you can then go online and see that your tracking number is um, listed among all the tracking numbers that were tallied. But they can't tell you that the backend system that then tallied the votes tallied them correctly or didn't drop your votes afterwards, something like that. So there, there are two issues here with the an, an, anonymity. That's the other thing with vote by mail is that you lose kind of that anonymity. Um, you're signing the ballot that you're sending in. And there, it's supposed to be separate from your ballot. There's a mechanism for they will open, they will check the, the signature on that envelope and they will separate it from the ballot inside that's in a separate envelope. So they do the verification without actually ever looking at your ballot. They divorce those two, the envelope and your ballot, so that when they uh, tally the ballot, they don't actually have their signature connected to it. Oh, man. <laughs> you see why I, I feel like uh, I always see cryptographers talking about how like this is so much more complex than making someone just like don't let my credit card get stolen which we do an okay job on a good day but like that's relatively simple like don't let anyone read my email like we got you it's just this handshake but then there are so many specific things you have to nail down for voting where it has to sort of it has to be cast it has to be tallied the tally has to sort of all those processes have to maintain integrity and then at the same time we have to maintain a level of anonymity so that we can't be like going through and sort of persecuting people based on how they voted. Right. I mean, as, I mean, you know, I, I'm a security reporter. The anonymity issue isn't um, high on my priority list. Um, but for some people, it is. And it used to be an issue for vote buying, right? If you if you um, could prove how you voted to someone, your employer or a party or whatever, they could buy your vote. And so that's that becomes an issue for some. But, you know, the, with the votes issue that you were talking about, you know, it requires you to sort of authenticate yourself at the, the front end of the system. And then it, the question is, how are they handling that in a way so that that authentication of who you are is separated from your ballot so that someone can't connect? 
connect those two. So that is that is an issue there. I think the the larger issue with the the systems like Votes, which is using mobile phone. That's a V-O-A-T-Z, right? Yes, V-O-A-T-Z. Um, is that we haven't figured out how to secure that backend client system, right? So you're you're basically saying now instead of the voting machines that we already know are vulnerable, that we already know were coded uh, poorly by the voting machine vendors, we're now going to say, okay, the voting machine now is instead of that system that you go to the precinct and vote on, the insecure system, the voting machine now is your laptop, um, which you haven't updated any patches on <laughs> in two years, or you know your Android phone that is that is rife with vulnerabilities and can be hacked. So it's that, you know, your system now, you're required to update and maintain the security of your own voting machine. Um, and then it's not just that, is we the delivery, right? We have to trust that election officials are designing a system or that a vendor like Votes has designed a system so that that entire chain from transmitting the ballot to you to then receiving the ballot back from you is also secured and also authenticated and also can't be targeted in a denial of service attack that prevents you actually from receiving or sending back your ballots. So a, a whole host of new problems that um, haven't been addressed, and yet Votes is out there pushing its solution. And a lot of people are saying, you know, why can't we, we do online banking all the time? We do e-commerce all the time. What's the problem? Why can't we do voting over the internet? The problem with, uh, and I get so tired of people using online banking as the example for why we should be doing online voting. When you're doing online banking, you have a record of every one of your transactions and you're receiving a ledger every month from the bank, um, either online or you get it in the mail, and you're able to then verify all of those transactions. It's also not anonymous. You go to the ATM, you get a receipt. You have all of this tracking, um, and you can go back to the bank and say, look, your system messed up. This is what I did, and this is what your system says I did. So you have a way of, let's say, reconciling for the person what went wrong. For a voter, you have uh, once you've cast that ballot and you're separated from that ballot, you have no way of knowing whether or not something happened to your ballot after you submitted it. And you have no way of then saying, holding up your hand and saying, hey, I have a record here, um, and it shows that you counted my ballot incorrectly. So the banking example doesn't match the voting example. Um, and so people shouldn't be using that. You also have a lot of incentive with the bank to check the bank. Right. Like a personal incentive to make sure the bank gets it right. Whereas, I mean, how much political science over 100 years, 200 years is about how voters actually don't have personal incentives and yet they vote anyway. Right. And they don't, and they don't they don't even look at we've seen studies where uh, they hand mark their ballot and then never review the ballot before they submit it. Um, there are systems like the optical scan machines are supposed to spit out your ballot if you vote for too many candidates. Like, you, you know, you can only vote for one presidential candidate, but let's say you mark two of them by mistake and you never even look at your ballot or you look at your ballot and you don't notice it. The machine not notices that and it spits back out the ballot and says, hey, you voted too many times. Fix this. Um, so once you start doing that in a way that is separated from the voter, uh, like the vote by mail ballots, this is going to be a problem. Voters are not going to check their ballots. They send them in. Once they've put that in the post, they have no way then uh, the system can spit back that ballot and say, hey, this voter voted for too many candidates in the presidential race. But that ballot has now been separated from the voter. The voter is sitting at home and you can't go back to the voter and say, hey, fix this now. So we're going to have a lot more problems 
um, in this election in that regard. A lot more ballots will get thrown out simply because voters don't check what they do before they send them in and because we don't have a way for them to reconcile the issues afterward. Can I, can I just say a word that'll make you mad? I mean, it, it'll make me sure. mad too, but I feel like we should say it. Well, I mean, like, <laughs> you know, votes, V-O-A-T-Z, votes with a Z. I do not think we should turn our democracy over to a company with a Z in the name. That's just me. It's a personal <laughs> feeling I have. My name has a Z. How can you say that? Well, yeah, but you're not. You, okay, well, Zetter is like a real, I'm, I'm just walking down a dangerous path. It's called votes. It's not replacing It's called S. votes. Yeah, it's called yeah, votes. For God's it's sake, a cute, man. It's a cutified, yes. It's, it's too cute. Yes. Like, Kim Zetter is like a meaningful cybersecurity name. He's got a brand. Votes is like, it, it honestly sounds like a middle school should use it for like a, a middle school election. Um, but they're trying, right? That's a company that's trying. They've built a tech stack. People have looked at it. What they are not doing, and this is where this is going to make you mad, is uh, a new look method, like a blockchain method of voting that a lot of people talk about. That seems like it has a number of positive benefits, but it seems like it has huge problems. Have you evaluated that stuff? Well, um, so there were people that looked at that system. Uh, MIT researchers looked at the claim that they were actually even using blockchain. And it turns out that they're at least not using blockchain for the transmission of the ballots back. And they said that they were. So presumably they're only using blockchain for the storage of the votes after they arrive. So, the, you know, the, the, the whole point of using the blockchain was to preserve the security of the transmission, um, not just the storage. So, it, you know, even that claim we couldn't trust. Um, so the problem is, is that, you know, until MIT looked at that system, um, we had to sort of believe the claims of votes itself that it had done some independent reviews of its system and that they had passed security. Well, now we find out that uh, it doesn't pass security and it doesn't even pass the claims that they asserted about it. And so there's this whole thing about, you know, turning over these systems to these third party vendors, um, trusting them to get something right and not having any transparency. That system also doesn't undergo testing and certification in the way that our voting machine does. So this is just remarkable to me that election officials would, um, you know, the voting machines that they put in the precincts, they, you know, by law, their states require in many cases them to undergo testing and certification. But then you move to something like this mobile voting app and that goes out the window and no one requires the, the same kind of rigor. Um, and I would question whether or not even the voting machines go under any kind of rigorous testing and certification. But even that s sort of low level of standard that we've required for the voting machines themselves goes out the window suddenly when we're talking about a mobile voting app. And I, I don't that I don't understand. Yeah, I, I guess. Uh the benefit seems very high. I mean, this is why we keep chasing it, right? Everyone has a phone to, you know, some degree of certainty. It would be better if more people participated in the democracy. It would be simpler. And, you know, I think generally we think computers are good at counting. So it seems very easy to say we should just all vote on our phones. Well, I would also say, I mean, this is the only nice thing I've ever said about blockchain voting, <laughs> but I will in the most abstract possible terms, the problem you're describing, Kim, of, you know, you've submitted the vote, you know that when you submitted it in the public facing part of it, it was for candidate A. How can you be sure that that's not being tallied as a vote for candidate B? That actually does seem like a problem that could plausibly be solved by having it sort of having them do the adding on a public ledger, right? Like, like what we want is for that to happen in an open and transparent way so that we can make sure that when you're adding up the numbers, there isn't anything funny going on. 
well, okay. So you have to authenticate that everything that's in that ledger is actually a legitimate ballot, right? First of all. Um, so there's still a lot of complications. Um, and then you also have to show in a transparent way that everything that is in that ledger is in the, in the actual tally and that nothing has changed in the tally. So I guess, um, I, you know, I don't know. I haven't seen a blockchain solution uh, I, that works uh, in voting. I haven't seen or spoken with any kind of uh, uh, election security expert who believes that blockchain is a solution for voting. Um, they know more than me. Uh, better than me about how the blockchain would work for voting. And so I kind of trust them to, you know, in their assessments that blockchain is not, you know, where you want to go down with voting. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and I think, I mean, this is 100%, the, right? Every time I, I think if I, if I like call up a security expert and mention blockchain voting, they'll like hang up on me. Like the, they are so sick of people talking about it. That's why I said it would make everybody mad. Yeah, you you succeeded. You succeeded in making us mad. But, but again, I mean, you know, Russell, you're still talking about the problem of having the backup, right? So let's say one of those, the ledger, the ledger fails, right? Um, and you still don't have that paper backup in any kind of mobile voting. I mean, everyone talks about, okay, this would increase voter turnout. Well, uh, the studies are a little mixed on that. There are some studies that say, yes, that when you do mobile voting, it does increase voter turnout. Um, others say it's not really um, it's sort of negligible. Um, voting by home should also increase voter turnout, right? The voter does is the le- has to do the least thing that they have to do. They receive something in the mail, they fill it out, they send it back. It's a prepaid envelope. That also really lowers the barrier for a lot of voters to cast a ballot. And at least in that vote by mail situation, you actually have a paper trail that's filled out by the voter. Look, there isn't a perfect um, voting solution. What we have to sort of examine are all of the risks, weigh them, and figure out the one that has um, the risks that can be most easily addressed or best addressed. And I think that, you know, people who have spent a lot of time talking, talking about this and thinking about this come down to that voter marked paper ballot is the best solution that we have. You can still tabulate the votes with a computer, but you need that paper trail for integrity, for faith and trust in the outcome and a way to reconcile um, problems when they do show up. So we only have a few minutes left. I want to ask broadly about our upcoming election, but I feel like we can't have a long conversation about voting security and online voting and all this stuff without like legally I'm required to mention Estonia. Like I feel like the, the police will come <laughs> if I don't. So Estonia is a small country. They do a lot of online voting. They're very proud of it. They've had a lot of controversy around it. Are they getting it right? Is that a model that we can look at? I don't think it's a model that anyone recommends. That has been audited, and two people who are very well regarded in election security uh, did an audit, found numerous problems with the system. Estonia didn't like that they found problems. Um, <laughs> I don't. I don't know that the the problems have been solved. Um, I know that Estonia likes to, you know, put itself out there as a leader in, you know, the internet's citizen. So they are they are pushing this. But I don't know the Estonian system well enough to know what kind of um, safeguards they have, what kind of checks and balances, what kind of auditing they do in that. So I, I, I'm a little reluctant to sort of assert whether or not they're doing it right. Um, all I know is that there are reports out there on the Internet that you can look at where people examined the Estonian system and found problems with it. Are there other countries that are, are good models that are, that are sort of getting the balances right? Not for internet voting. I mean, no one, no one recommends internet voting in the security community. But uh, elections in general, 
Or election security in general. Oh, I mean, elections are complicated. I, I mean, the best model, I just, I'll just keep back, coming back to that. I feel like a broken record. The best model is having a voter uh, hand-marked paper ballot in which you do an audit afterwards. I mean, it's, it seems people don't like that because it seems like, you know, it's not really a sexy solution, right? It sounds like old school voting, which we had for a long time. But sometimes that is the best solution is that you have is to go back to the, that low tech, least complicated way of, of voting. Uh, like I said, again, it, it, that has its own issues that you have to address, but every election is going to have integrity issues that need to be addressed. And so you just have to come down to where you weigh the risks um, and decide which has the risks that you can most easily address and that are the most transparent to address. So, look, I don't think being a broken record on there is a known best solution is a problem. Like, right? Sometimes there's just a known best solution and we should go with it. I think that brings us to now, which is the known best solution potentially has another very high cost, which is transmission of the virus. How do you see that playing out? I mean, we're, all, we're recording this, you know, in March. We don't know what's going to happen by November. But how do you see the conversation playing out right now? Yes. I mean, so weighing those two risks, right, between poll workers and voters getting infected and, and potentially dying, that, of course, is is not the option that we want. And so the second best option that we have may be, may be vote by mail. And so I'm not saying don't do vote by mail. But if we're going to do vote by mail, it's not something that we can slap together at the last minute. It really needs uh, concerted planning starting right now. And they need to look at it with open eyes and understand all of the potential risks that they're going to have. Quite often what you get are election officials. Um, everyone tells them in advance, OK, these are, this is what's going to happen. People can actually anticipate the problems that are going to happen. And then election officials don't address them. And then on election day, everything falls apart. And they say, well, no one could have seen this. But everyone can see right now all of the potential problems from vote by mail. And it requires a lot of planning. And so that's the question now is, um, will the federal government pass a, a bill that provides election officials with all the money they need to hire new staff to implement new new processes and procedures uh, to get it right by November? And so it's really in the hands of the federal government right now to provide um, the resources necessary to make that go smoothly. It's still not going to go smoothly, but to make it go as smoothly as we can possibly do it in the short amount of time that we have. So, so in terms of like the political wish list that, that sort of verge cast listeners should go out and, and sort of demand from their representatives, it's we should actually invest in elections that are that sort of function well, like we need to spend a little bit more money on this, it'll be worth it. And then also, it sounds like for your local sort of election body, the, the county board usually you should be asking for a paper trail, for a paper ballot, and, and kind of making sure that they don't do anything too fancy? I mean, is, is, that, is that what we should send folks out to, to go advocate for? Yeah, you, you need to have the paper backup. You need to have an auditing mechanism in place and an auditing law in place. And then you need the resources given to election officials um, for this process to succeed by November. But really, I mean, we don't have a lot of time because primaries are going to have the same issue. And the rescheduled primaries are in, you know, two months or so. So, I mean, I, I don't I don't want to depress everyone, um, but it, this is a this is a real challenge, how we're going to pull this off this election year. The alternative is that the election gets canceled. Um, and I don't think that we want that either. 
So everyone has to get this right, um, has to do the planning, has to get the resources. Federal government needs to move on this to get the money out to states. And then election officials have to take the responsibility and actually uh, produce a plan um, and do this right. Because the alternative is either we have a really messed up election or we have no election at all. So that's what's in our hands. So I want to end on a I wouldn't no, I wouldn't call it up, uplifting. But if you right, we're trying to fix a system. <laughs> no, do the uplifting. I want the uplifting. I'm trying. I Let me need see it. I wander my way to it. I've been such a downer. <laughs> no, I mean, the, the reality is that you know uh, we live in a society and a democracy that's been going for a while. We have a long history. There's systems that have to be changed, not replaced. Based on everything you know, if you were to clean sheet it, mm. right, and say this is actually how we should do it. What would be your recommendation? Um, pretty much what I've been saying. I would get rid of the voting machines that we have now in precincts, unless it's an optical scan machine. I would do a, look, DARPA, right? DARPA has been researching, I wrote a story about this. They have been looking at doing a system from scratch that has uses the latest in secure hardware techniques. Um, so if you could design a system from bottom up, right, I would scrap all of the voting machines that we currently have that we know have problems in them. I would design an open source system that's transparent, uh, that uses secure hardware so that the, the base of it is already secure, um, then has open source software that's been fully vetted and is secure. And then it is, it's a scanner, right? It's not a touchscreen um, machine without a paper trail. And it uses a hand-marked paper ballot for disabled voters, you can have a touchscreen for them. And then you also require those audits. That seems to be sort of the pie in the sky. If we could do this all over again, start from scratch, um, that would be the way that I'd go. Well, I'll get to work on that immediately. My goal <laughs> when this is all over is to somehow take control of the United States government. I don't know how that works without getting elected, but I'm thinking about it. Um, <laughs> That's the next episode. We have the paramilitary training. And uh, yeah. First of all, you just take control of the machines. You take control of voting machines, and that's how you get elected to then then have the control to take over. Uh, like I'm saying, like everybody, I've had a lot of time to sort of sit around at home uh, and think big thoughts. Uh, Kim, thank you so much for coming on. We've been huge fans for such a long time. It, uh, it's kind of an honor to speak with you. So thanks for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. And I'm sorry for depressing you. <laughs> All right, my thanks to Kim Zetter for joining us on the Vergecast. Again, sorry that we taped it in March and released it this week, but I still think it's incredibly relevant. I love that conversation. It was actually kind of fun for me to go back and listen to it. Uh, voting security, voting tech, we're going to keep on top of it as we come up to the election. We've got a lot of plans for election coverage. Uh, also, thanks to Russell for joining me. Always a good time. We'll be back on Friday with the chat show. A lot of news going down lately. We'll see if there's another streaming service coming out. There usually is one. Uh, you can tweet at me. I'm at Reckless. Let me know who you want me to talk to, what you you want me to cover. I love that feedback. It really helps us drive the show. Other than that, we'll see you on Friday. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the <laughs> No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. 
For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com slash Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement.